Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. All of us are familiar with optical illusions, uh, tricks that people play all the time or sometimes are uh, played on us. Some of them are intentional as parts of a show, we might say. Some of them happen in the course of daily life where we just make inferences about the size of something or the color of, of a wall or the length of, of uh, some uh, distance or something like that. We make those all the time, all those conclusions, because we're focused on the wrong metrics, sometimes distracted from reality by, by, by uh, some unimportant event or unconscious of the inferences that we're making or focusing on some ambiguity rather than the reality that's right in front of us. But all the time we're prone to uh, make these assessments in the wrong way because we're looking at the wrong things. So many times it's not until we're given the right key, a visual key or the right tool or the right measuring standard that's placed alongside of the object or the uh, incident or whatever. It's not until we have the right key that we finally understand how we've been looking at something all wrong. Well, Jesus is helping us in this great Sermon on the Mount, as we come back to it today, he's helping us to see some illusions that we're living under. These aren't optical illusions, they're spiritual illusions. He's dealing with miscalculations that people make, miscalculations that you make, wrong conclusions that you may draw about your spiritual life and about your spiritual state because you focus on the wrong realities or you measure with the wrong tools or you're You're overtaken by some ambiguity. And Jesus is doing this in the context of a broader discussion of the law, which he started back in verse 17. He was telling the audience uh, that was sitting in his uh, great sermon there, he was telling them that he didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to separate people from the law. In fact, he came to fulfill it. And so every jot and every tittle He says every stroke of the pen, every dot of the letter, every one of them are going to be fulfilled. None of it is going to pass away. The problem at the time of Christ's teaching, however, was that people didn't understand the law. He could say that, but they they still thought that somehow he was against the law. And the reason is because they had... They had layered on top of one another years and years and years of tradition, man-made tradition, oral tradition. These were things, as I've said in the past, that were passed down orally from generation to generation. They weren't written down for probably another 150 years or 200 years after the time of Christ. But they were traditions that purported to go all the way back even to the time of Moses himself. They were, they were supposedly things that uh, Jews had come to believe were given alongside of the law and explained the law and ought to be taught with the law. In some places, superseded the law in importance. A typical Jew, therefore, only understood the law as they looked at it through the lens of these oral traditions. They were heavily dependent on them, so much so that that uh, Jesus had to try to help them set aside that optical illusion that was created when they looked at the law through their traditions. Now, he does that here throughout this section with a series of contrasts. And you can see in verse 21 all the way through the end of the chapter, there are six sort of blocks of this text. And And they all form this sort of contrast. Jesus says, in one way or another, you have heard that it was said, or you've heard that it was said to those of old, referring to those rabbinic traditions. And he does that in in part to set in contrast to what he says. But I say to you, all of that wanting to uh, set alongside of their traditions the right teaching the right application of the law, helping them to understand, in some cases, directly what the law teaches, 
or in some cases, we might say accommodations within the law that were given in order to mitigate its eventual breaking. Sometimes laws were given in the Old Testament that were supposed to govern the breaking of other laws that God already knew was going to happen. And even further down in the chapter, he gets to sort of more broad principles that undergird the law. But all of it really are these contrasts that are set up to help them understand the way they should read the law, the way they should view the law, the way they should think about the law. Because of their traditions, they had perverted all of that. They had distorted all of that. They not only had distorted the law, but they had twisted an idea of righteousness. They had perverted ideas of sin, and they had twisted ideas of themselves. Ultimately led the scribes and Pharisees and all those who followed them to uh, believe that they were not as sinful as they think they are, to believe that they were better than they really were. They were like the Pharisee that Jesus describes in Luke 18 who went into the temple or the synagogue to pray and and, uh, he looks across the room and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. That's their view of themselves. And it was a direct corollary to their view of the law, and which was a was a consequence of their rabbinic traditions and the way that they twisted the law. So Jesus is, Jesus is unmasking all of this, and he's doing it with these six contrasts, and all of it giving sort of hard-hitting, convicting messages related to God's law, related to the Scripture. They deal, you might say, narrowly with six separate subjects, but the principles that he lays out here really help us to make sense out of the entire law and the entire Old Testament. They really help us to to understand the way that Jesus uses the Scripture, the way that Jesus understood and interpreted the Scripture. So we want to work our way carefully through this one at a time so that we can really grasp all of that. Now he begins, Jesus does, in verse 21 through 26 with perhaps what is the most universally uh, recognized or you might say universally condemned behavior that you could imagine and was dealt with by the law. It was dealt with in rabbinic tradition. But it was the issue of murder. And he he begins there, I believe, because even the the person with the most base moral compass typically recognizes the seriousness and pernicious nature of taking the life of someone else. It's one thing that nearly everyone, no matter what their persuasion, uh, politically, nationally, historically, whatever, almost everyone would condemn. The one behavior which everyone believes they would never stoop to, Jesus takes this issue up to teach us important lessons about the law itself. Listen to what he says when it comes to this issue And what the law has to say about it. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus is expounding 
the law here. And he's focusing on this issue to make some critical points about the law. It is not as if only the law of murder and anger are to be understood this way. The whole law can be sort of unpacked and demonstrated in the way that Jesus looks at this one law. And so as we look at it, we're going to sort of take note then of the general principles of the way Jesus handles the law. Or, or we might say it this way, we're going to take note of, of, of three intentions and purposes of the law as illustrated by the law of uh, the prohibition against murder. First of all, first of all, the law was intended to remove assumptions of innocence. The law was intended to remove assumptions of innocence. You hear this in Jesus' words in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, this is a reference, obviously, to the sixth commandment found uh, in the Decalogue, found in the Ten Commandments, whether Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus uh, 20. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Everyone sort of is familiar with that basic thing. And, And so this is a reference to the unlawful taking of someone's life. And it's clear throughout the Old Testament that this was prohibited. It's said over and over again. It's not talking about all forms of killing. There are some forms of killing which are sanctioned in the Old Testament, particularly capital punishment. We're told that soon after the flood of Noah, God gave Noah a few instructions through which he was to begin re-establishing civilization on the face of the earth. And one of them, in Genesis 9-6, the Lord declared that whoever sheds blood by man shall his blood be shed, sort of establishing the principle there of of the law of capital punishment. So throughout the Old Testament, this principle was was, was sort of established and, uh, and then built on and, and, and extrapolated over and over again. And as the law of Moses eventually came around hundreds of years later, it also taught how you are to deal with this kind of murderous activity through judicial means. Deuteronomy 17, verse 8. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose and you will come before the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in office in those days and you will consult with them and they shall declare to you the decision." So here it is, if you have a homicide, you have a, 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 a murder of some sort, you deal with it at the local level. But if it's too difficult, if you can't discern how best to handle the situation, then you take it to the central court, to the central temple and the Levitical priesthood and the high priest, whoever's serving at that point, and they would serve as the sort of final analysis there. But very clear, you deal with it judicially. You deal with it according to the... The, 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 the laws of justice. Exodus 21, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So you take him, you bring him before the uh, judicial system, which would have been centered again in the temple, and you deal with it. Leviticus 24, 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. So over and over again, this principle is taught Throughout the law, and you could multiply others on top of this, that a murderer faces judgment. A murderer faces judgment. They face judgment. So he begins with this basic, universally condemned sin and behavior, something that was clearly taught in the Old Testament and something that would have been affirmed by rabbinic tradition. Through the years, Jews would have no doubt followed these laws. They would have condemned, in most cases, their murderers. They would have uh, probably enacted uh, capital punishment 
a number of times. It wouldn't have been perfect. No legal system is, but they probably at least tried to follow this basic principle. But at the same time, no doubt, as they followed it, they felt a sort of smug security. As they dealt with these kinds of criminals in society, they felt a sort of a a sense of superiority. Thankful, certainly, that they could deal with these heinous crimes, but thankful that they didn't fall into that category. Jesus, however, lets them know that that's really not the final purpose of this law. That's not really the basic reason for the law. And he does this with a kind of a threefold progression that he gives in verse 22. Threefold progression that, that talks about this judgment, this punishment, but, but it sort of uh, progressively becomes more intense as Jesus goes along. First of all, he says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother, with his sister, with his friend, with his neighbor... Everyone who is angry with another person will be liable to the judgment. Now, right off the top, we need to make note of something here. Jesus is talking about a certain kind of anger. He's talking about an anger of personal offense. He's not talking about all forms of anger. God himself, we're told, is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7. He's not dealing with anger that sort of arises from God himself or in godly ways. That should be clear from the whole context. First of all, just recognizing that everything he's saying here is framed within the context of a system of justice that that enacts judicial judgments against murderers. So right off, the, right off the start, it's obvious that it is appropriate to be offended by heinous crimes. It's appropriate to want to see justice served when there are heinous crimes. Jesus isn't condemning that kind of sort of social offense that takes place in those situations. Not only that, we can note, secondly, when he gets down to verse 23 and following, when he begins to give illustrations of this, the illustrations are very much about personal offenses, personal anger, interpersonal conflict. And thirdly, we would even note that in Jesus' own life, there were, of course, times when he was angry. He was angry when he came into the temple and people had turned it into a marketplace for personal profit. He was angry whenever he was healing people on the Sabbath and, and Pharisees and scribes were, were um, hurling insults at them. He was angry whenever he tried to grapple and, and uh, debate with the Pharisees. In fact, he even called them blind fools. He was angry in all of these ways for these kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, offenses that were taking place in the Jewish system, and the Jewish society. He was angered by all of that, but none of it was ever a, a, a situation where his personal ego was wrapped up in the issue. In fact... When Jesus was personally mistreated, when he was falsely accused, when he was arrested and beaten and crucified, Peter tells us that he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he had every reason because uh, because of his own personal interest, when he had every reason for his own ego to be involved, he never showed personal animosity in return. In fact, all he did was pray that God would forgive So none of this that he's talking about really has to do with any of that sort of category of offense or anger. What he's talking about is personal anger. And the issue that is often our problem is that we're not um, usually offended much at all in society over its injustices and its indecencies. But when it comes to personal slights, personal offenses personal attacks or 
deprivations or anything like that, when it comes to all of that, we become very offended. Jesus is talking about all that here, and he wants to make clear that, what, that the intent of the law was not only to declare the worst expressions of sin as guilty. The intent of the law was to render a verdict against every expression of sin. From murder all the way down to anger. And to do that, Jesus um, uh, expresses or turns his focus here to one of a, a couple of expressions of the law. He He goes, if you will, beyond the issue of murder to what you might say is the root of the law. And he wants to make clear that the same laws that govern murder and call for judgment for murder also govern hatred. Or another way to say that is the fundamental issues that are violated by murder are also violated by hatred. The fundamental issues that are, that, that are violated in the law by murder are also violated by anger and hatred. And it doesn't matter what the reason, what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what it is in your environment that might have stirred it. None of that really matters when you fall into this pattern of personal animosity towards someone because of some offense or because of some prejudice or because of some other reason you fall under the condemnation of God's law. Now to get what Jesus is saying here it's important for us to understand not only that murder is wrong but why it's wrong. And to do that we we could go all the way back to what I mentioned a minute ago in Genesis 9 after the flood of Noah, when they were exiting the ark and, and getting ready to start repopulating the earth and reestablishing civilization and society, God gave just a couple of important laws that were to be followed at that point. And one of the more fundamental there in Genesis 9-6 was, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. The law of capital punishment. Why? Well, he says in the second half of the verse, because God made man in his own image. Because God made man in his own image. This is why murder is wrong. This is why murder is condemned. This is why it is one of the most fundamental issues in society and of sin. This is why a society cannot allow murder because life is sacred and life is sacred because it's created by God and not only is it created by God, it's created in God's own image. And so therefore, an attack on an individual is an attack against God himself. And this doesn't apply to animals, it doesn't apply to other living things, but when it comes to other human beings, to attack them is to attack God's role as creator, or in some cases, is to try to usurp his role as judge. The issue behind prohibitions of murder, in other words, are not simply the protection of people. The issue behind prohibitions against murder are not simply stemming tides of dangerous activity in society. The prohibitions against murder are not simply so that you and I can be more safe in our neighborhoods. That's really not the main reason. The main reason that God gives for dealing with murder is because He's trying to protect His role as the maker and the judge of all humanity. That's the reason he gives, because this person whose life has been unlawfully taken was made in the image of God. 
Now, once you begin to understand that fundamental reason, that prohibition against murder in Genesis 9-6, then you can begin to understand all the wider applications of God's law. You understand that there are other ways that we attack God's role as creator and judge that include not just murder, but all kinds of attacks, all kinds of hatred and anger. Now, James draws this out explicitly in his little letter, James, in chapter 3, when he's talking about the deadly power of the tongue. And he draws this point out when he says, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father. And with our tongue we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, he says, come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Here's James' principle against hatred and bitterness and cursing with your tongue, against speech that is critical and defiling and all those things. And he draws it directly from creation theology The same creation theology that stands behind the prohibition of murder. All of this coming straight out of the book of Genesis where God says, let us make man in our own image, male and female, let us make them. At that point, God not only created humanity, created mankind, but he sort of endorses him or establishes him as an envoy on the face of the earth. Men and women born at that point represent God's dominion and God's rule. They have, they have delegated authority and rule on the face of the earth as God's image. And that wasn't true just of Adam and Eve. We know because in Genesis 9-6, when Noah was reestablishing civilization, they were still bearing the image of God. They, even though sin had entered into the world, and even though men and women fell into sin, the image of God was retained. And it became the reason for prohibition against murder. God laid all this out and spelled it out very clearly. So that we're to understand something fundamental about humanity functioning and existing as God's image that comes under direct assault when you murder another human being. And what James is telling us is that this same principle also comes under attack when you verbally assault someone, when you verbally attack them. When you allow your tongue to curse people, when you allow your tongue to criticize people, when you allow your tongue to denounce people and castigate people, when that happens, you are also attacking someone made in the image of God. In fact, James says a little bit earlier that when that's happening, your tongue is set on fire by the very fires of hell. Serious business. So in the same way, when you curse another human being, you're violating the same fundamental order of creation. You are usurping God in his role as the maker of that person that you are attacking. And you're usurping his role as the judge. You are, in other words, expressing rebellion against God. You may imagine that your verbal attack is against your human adversary, but James says, no, it's against God. Your anger, your malice, your hatred isn't against the other person. It's against God who made that person. So cursing and bitterness and anger along with murder, all of it arise from the same impulse and it's guilty on the same principle. James learned that no doubt from Jesus' own teaching. He learned how to interpret the Old Testament that way because he heard Jesus deal with the Old Testament that way. Interestingly, John does the same thing. We heard it earlier in our scripture reading, 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So both James and John draw this connection between hatred and murder, and they learned it all from Jesus. They learned it from the law, insults and cursings and hatred and anger and murder. They all have the same source. And really, the only difference between you and the murderer is not your attacks against God. It is simply your acts against other people. You just are unwilling, for whatever reason, good or bad, you're just unwilling to act out what you feel in your heart. That is to say that you may not ever murder someone, but you certainly wish that they were eliminated. You certainly wish that they were not in your life, if not on the face of the earth. And if something happened to them, you wouldn't mourn that much. The only difference between you and the murderer is the act. Because the attitude and the heart is the same. And so in God's eyes, hatred is liable to judgment. The same law that prohibits murder judges murder. The same law that judges that judges hatred. And to be clear what he's talking about here, that it's not just the murder that's behind, excuse me, not just the anger that's behind murder. To make that clear, he expands on this there in verse 22, and he says, whoever insults his brother, whoever insults his neighbor, whoever insults another human being, whoever insults a brother or sister is liable to the council. Now, the council here is the Sanhedrin. That is the 70 priest and elders who were the highest seat of government in Israel. They, in those days, had no president, no king, no parliament, or anything like that. This was the highest seat of government. They were, you might say, the Supreme Court in Israel. They were the ones who were designated to deal among all the millions and millions of people who were in Israel. They were the ones who were designated to deal with the biggest, most important cases in Israel. So this is a step up from saying that you simply face judgment. It's a step up from saying that whenever you're angry that someone in your local community, someone around you needs to deal with it in some judicial fashion. He's escalating this. He's actually saying that this is something that ought to go to the highest court in the land. Those who went before the council were recognized as being some of the most important issues that faced the nation and faced the society at the time. And so Jesus is saying, this, when you are insulting someone, this is one of the most important issues that faces society at this moment. Your insult against someone else. It's not any less important than murder. It's not any less of a serious matter. It's not any less significant. It needs to be dealt with by the highest court in the land. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if our Supreme Court in the United States had to take time to deal with every critical, insulting word that was hurled back and forth between two Americans? I mean, the president's Twitter alone would keep them busy, right? All day. Not to mention all social media probably have to shut down. Our whole economy would grind to a halt. Society couldn't function. We couldn't bear the burden. There's no way we wouldn't be capable of doing it. And even if we tried... We aren't qualified. We couldn't get all the information. We couldn't approach it without our own biases and without our own sort of prejudices and all this other stuff. We couldn't do it. You know, there are, there are laws on our books against things like defamation and libel whenever you take some sort of accusation or an insult and then put it into print. But even those are rarely, rarely adjudicated because honestly, they're just too difficult. They take too much time. But Jesus is saying, that's the standard. 
That's what God's law establishes. Because this is serious, serious stuff. That's, what, that's the kind of attention you need to be giving to this issue. This ought to be taken up by the highest court available. It ought to be dealt with. It, it is that serious to society. It's that serious to the world around you. Now, obviously, we're not capable of meeting these demands. The standard is too high. I mean, if I had to go every time I said some critical word about somebody, every time I said some, some sort of insulting, slight word, every time I had to sort of trek off to Washington, D.C. to go to the highest, I mean, I, would, I might as well move there. Might as well sort of set up a tent outside. Can't do it. It's beyond our capacity to deal with it. Our anger, our insults toward other men and women are, are just beyond our capacity. Which is why Jesus adds really thirdly here, whoever says you fool is liable of hellfire. This is, this is just really another sort of way of assaulting their character. The first word, insult, is the word raka, basically means empty, and it's kind of, we would say sort of canceling somebody. just says, you know, you're nothing. You're really kind of attacking their, their sort of competency at that point. You're just unimportant. This word is moros, from which we get moron, you fool. But it's really talking about a person's character. In fact, in Matthew, the word is used, I believe every other time it's used, it's always in reference to somebody who's rejected by God. So this is not someone who's just incompetent. This is someone who, is, who is, has a fundamental character flaw. One writer says, Raka expresses contempt for a man's head. Moros expresses a contempt for his heart. But the point of all this is not to say that one is really more serious than the other in terms of those insults. They're all serious. Because all of them are an attack against someone who's an image bearer of God. All of them are an assault against God in His role as maker and judge. And so Jesus says, you're not only going to be facing some high court, you, in fact, are going to be facing liability to hell. All of this is why Paul says in Romans 12, 9, Beloved, never, never, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not your place. God hasn't given you that right. He hasn't given you that call. He hasn't uh, sort of delegated that to you. Your cursing and your insult and your criticism and your anger and all that stuff, it's not you, your place. And when you engage in that, you are, you are attacking God in His role as the judge, God in His role as the maker. You're doing that as much as the murderer. It's not your place to burn in your heart with personal offenses. It's not your place to hold on to that bitterness. It's not your place to go out... On your, on your media stream and start hurling all your comments against this person or that person. Leave all that up to the Lord, he says. He may do it on the day of final judgment. He might do it through his own sort of established governmental systems who bear the sword in his name. He might do it, but it's his job to do it. That's the point. So, Jesus is ripping away all the false measurements 
He's correcting all the sort of aberrations that have led to your illusion, your spiritual illusion about who you are and where you stand before God and what God thinks about you. He's ripping all that stuff away. You've been measuring by the wrong standards. You've been shading the boxes the wrong way. You've been thinking that somehow the colors are darker for some person and lighter for you. You've been thinking all those things. It's just an illusion. And he wants to remove all that so that you can see, so that you can measure where you really stand with God. In light of that, he sort of draws out a second point, which has to do really with your insincere worship. You, you think that you're okay with God, and so you go on worshiping God week in and week out like nothing's wrong. We don't have a lot of time to develop this, but I think you can understand from everything we have already seen about the seriousness of anger and the seriousness of these personal uh, sort of conflicts that you have, you can understand what Jesus says here in verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is the same sort of thing that James was saying. You know, it ought not to be that we would, with our tongue, bless our Lord and Father and with our tongue curse people who are made in the likeness and image of God. That can't stand. That's, that is inconsistent. There's something fundamentally in conflict. To come in and sing praises to God or to come in and worship God or to come in and offer some gift to God as if you are honoring Him while at the same time you're dishonoring Him by the way that you are attacking and criticizing and undermining the people who are around you. How can you rightly worship God? When you're cursing his work, his creation, questioning his wisdom in making or in judging and dealing with other people, all that's disingenuous. Now, if you're paying attention, you may have picked up that Jesus has subtly reversed the roles here a bit for us really just kind of extend this principle because now he's not expressly talking about you having anger against someone else he's talking about an offense that has been taken by somebody else and maybe anger that might even arisen in their heart because of something that you did and he pictures a scene that would be familiar for most Jews a Jew goes into the temple perhaps for a sin offering. Maybe he's there because he feels already guilty about something. He wants to offer a, a, an offering, a sin, in order to deal with it. The Scripture's clear in Leviticus 6 and other places that when that happens, that you are actually supposed to go and first make retribution. If you have oppressed someone, if you've cheated someone, if you've lied about somebody, that before you come and make your offering, you're actually supposed to go first and deal with that. So, so, so maybe that's what's going on here, but, but this really could be any offering. As a matter of fact, Jesus pictures it here as if you're going in and it's not even on your mind. You're actually there before the altar and, and, and then you're placing your gift on the altar. And at that moment, you remember. You remember that your brother has something against you. So it wasn't even in your mind when you came in. At that point, you recognize that your life has in some way violated, has, has, has assaulted or has in some way defrauded, whatever, someone else. I don't think, by the way, Jesus has in mind here some sort of twisted form of people-pleasing. In other words, he's not suggesting that you can't worship if someone has some sort of unreasonable complaint against you that would, 
that would prevent you from ever offering true worship. He's not suggesting that you have to keep everybody happy before you can worship the Lord. Jesus himself, you may remember, was the object of many, many complaints. Unending complaints and accusations. He's not suggesting that his own prayers or his own offerings of thanksgiving were somehow rendered unfit because people were upset with him. But if you're there and you realize that someone has a legitimate grievance against you, then you need to cease and desist your act of worship right there. Literally, leave your gift on the altar. Hasn't even, you haven't even completed the worship service. You don't even wait for it to end. You don't grab your gift off the altar. You leave your gift on the altar. You immediately make your way for the exit so that you can go and make things right. Now, this obviously expands the verdict of the law. Now, you're responsible not only for your own anger, but now you are responsible when you stir anger in others. Or we might say it this way, you're responsible not only for the anger that is in your heart, but you're responsible as well for the inconsideration or the indifference that you might have toward the grievances and hurts of other people for which you've had a hand in creating. Why? Well, the same reason. Because you are demeaning one of God's creations, God's handiwork. And a sin against one of God's image bearers is a sin against God. So this was the law. It was intended to remove your assumptions of innocence. It was intended to reject your insincere worship. Expose all of that. And finally, it was intended to require urgent action. It was called, it was intended to lead you to respond to all of this. You first of all understand the law. When you understand the law, you begin to deal with it. It begins to impact you. You can't do that until you accept the law. You can't do that until you accept what it says. You understand what it says. You accept what it says. And then you act. And when you act, Jesus says, if you understand everything that the law says about you, if you understand the real seriousness of all this stuff, it will cause urgent action. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court. Some people believe this is actually the sort of carryover from verses 23 and 24. So the person's left their gift on the altar. They've gone out into the street to find the person who's upset with them and they find them literally going to the court. They're headed to the judge. And they try to come to terms quickly with them, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. And all this sort of builds on on a judicial system that was common in the ancient world, really up until the last uh, uh, couple of hundred years. It was common to have debtors' prisons. In other words, when someone failed to pay a debt, they were appointed some sort of officer, uh, some sort of uh, custodian, who would begin to try to extract from them the money that they owed. And if they couldn't do it by threats and brutality, they would do it by liquidation. And if they couldn't get everything that was owed by liquidation, then they would finally hand them over to the prison guard and the prison guard would throw them into debtor's prison where obviously they couldn't work, they couldn't learn, earn an income, they couldn't pay anything. They were there forever. They were stuck. The, the, the situation could never be resolved. In fact, it was in many ways the fatal flaw of the system, why people eventually got rid of it, because it never, it never actually led to resolution. There were just these unending liabilities. But Jesus says, you need to understand the seriousness 
of this stuff. This is what the law wanted you to understand, the seriousness of what you think are passing idle words that you toss out there, that you post, that you just sort of, just sort of uh, entertain yourself with. He's saying you're going to reach a point where reconciliation is not possible. And you may end suffering the consequences of broken relationships with brothers and sisters, with friends, with parents, with children, because you've taken it beyond the point where repair can happen. You're cast into prison and there's no escape, he says. The consequences are there. That's that's the reality. That's part of the optical illusion. It's part of what you don't see, but God sees. He understands the seriousness. The scripture says the power of life and death are in the tongue. That's why God looks on this with such, such scorn. That's why James talks about the tongue with such powerful language. Why it says that it's set on fire by hell. All that stuff is what the law wanted to convey because all of that stuff, all of that stuff is what you need to realize in terms of your guilt. When you do when you understand it, when you see it, when you recognize its seriousness, the next step is to take urgent action and as much as is possible within you to live at peace with all men. Now, I'm sure, just like me, uh, you probably are sitting and thinking, wow. This is impossible. I mean, I recognize my sin and I see the fault of my tongue. I mean, but if every little idle word that I said that's like that has to be drugged before the Supreme Court and if everything like that needs to be escalated to the highest level, if that's how serious this stuff is, I I am guilty, guilty. Well... That's exactly what Jesus is after. He said to you that you need a righteousness. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to have a righteousness that's above even the scribes and Pharisees. You've got to have a righteousness that exceeds even their sort of meticulous religious standards. And... What he's calling for here is a righteousness you could never, ever live out on your own. You're guilty. You're guilty. Don't congratulate yourself that you're not the murderer. Don't congratulate yourself that you're not the one running around in sexual immorality. Don't congratulate yourself that you're not the one who is the known thief you're guilty and you're going to face the hellfire if you don't do something about it. And he says in verse 25, you need to work quickly. You need to make things right with your accuser. Listen, that isn't just other people that you've dealt wrongly with. That is most importantly God. There's a point, he says, where you can't make it right anymore. It can't be done. You'll be thrown into the prison and you'll be there and you'll have no way of ever, ever making things right. The judgment is going to be severe. Reconciliation is going to be off the table. No one is going to be innocent. Your guilt is way greater than you realize. 
You may have tried to excuse it, but the law was given and God is there and it's not going to be wiped away. So who deserves hell? Who's guilty of murder? Who deserves to be punished by God? Scripture says you have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death. What do you do? I mean, how do you escape that? Well, thankfully, God has made a way. We're all guilty. We're all sort of we're all sort of under the condemnation. We've all said malicious things. We've all uh, let loose our tongue. We've all harbored uh, anger and bitterness in our heart. We've all sort of uh, lashed out at other people. We all stand condemned. Our, our load of guilt is more than we can bear. But there was someone who had no anger, who never said an inappropriate word, who never did anything that would cause someone to appropriately be upset with them. Jesus Christ lived on this earth and every word he said was wholesome. Every act of worship that he offered to God, every gift, I should say, of thanksgiving, every word of praise, everything that he, that he did was in accordance with righteousness. And yet he went to the cross to be slaughtered, the death of a murderer, so that he could take the punishment of all of us who deserve that. You who deserve that. He did that so that your sins, no matter how heinous they are, murder, anger, whatever, he did that so that all your sins can be forgiven. So that your sins are laid on him and you are clothed in the righteousness of God. All of his pristine works, all of his pure works, all of his pure thoughts and heart, all of that stuff, you're clothed in it. You're presented before God as righteous. This is the message of the law and the message of Christ. And it's what he wanted his listeners to understand then. It's what he wants you to understand today. God has a high standard. You can't meet it. You may as well give up thinking that you ever will. The idea is not to somehow try to overcome the standards. The idea is to surrender before God as the filthy sinner you are and to plead for his grace and mercy. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and you... You believe the Lord is working in your heart. You hear what His law says about you and you have come to realize that you are guilty before God. We ask you, please, when we're done here, come and see us in our welcome center down the hall. We would love to be able to hear what the Lord is doing in your life and in your heart. We'd love to be able to pray with you. We would love to be able to share with you exactly what God would have you do in response to his word. Father, we're thankful for this truth, so thankful that you give it to us week in and week out to call us to a standard of righteousness and a standard of holiness that is demonstrated by Christ and purchased for us by his cross. It's birthed with inside of us by the gift of His Spirit and it's lived out by His power. Lord, we need Him in every way so that our tongues are brought into alignment with the truths that we find in Scripture, with the reality that You as the Sovereign has created every precious person around us and you as the sovereign will be their judge one day and we can trust that entire 
reality to you. So may we rest in that truth and may it be borne out in our speech and may we become those whose tongues, whose heart is known for contentment and blessing and joy and righteousness. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.